Welcome to Church's Changing Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I have the joy of interviewing the original creator of this podcast and so much more, Rachel Gilmore. Rachel is one of those high-capacity leaders that has literally been there and done that. She is a church planter out of Virginia. She was a Path One leader and content creator where she birthed the Field Preachers podcast that has now become the Church's Changing podcast and has recently moved into the role of church developer for the Desert Southwest Conference. So I can't think of a better conversation partner than Rachel to give us a big overview of what she's seeing in the changing church today, given the fact that she's moved from Virginia to Nashville, Tennessee, and now to the Desert Southwest. So Rachel, welcome. Thank you, Beth. It's so great to be here and to see you. This is fun. Um, Yes, so, so much, right, is changing. And planting when I started, gosh, back in 2009 to when I was planting again last year, I mean, even in a decade, so much has changed. And now with the pandemic and COVID, we're seeing ongoing changes. So, yes, let's talk about all the things. Let's brainstorm so anyone listening can say, oh, my gosh, I'm not a unicorn. I'm not the only one who is facing this or experiencing this. We're struggling with this, too, because church planting is harder now than it was 10 years ago, especially here in the Southwest, right? Because church is not as prominent outside of the Bible Belt. And so I've had to be a little creative in the church I planted last year or started to plant before. Yeah, they reappointed me to this developer role, which I am loving because we have the most incredibly gifted clergy and planters out here, and we're able to innovate and come up with some crazy ideas. So, so yes, let's begin. Where should we start, Beth? Let's start with your big move from the Bible Belt to out west, where you are now encountering a very post-Christian culture. So what were some of the big surprises for you and how have you adjusted to that? Oh, what a great question. So, you know, when I originally came out, I was a missional consultant at Central United Methodist Church, which was the very first Protestant church ever established in Phoenix back in 1870. So 150 years ago, so you had this massive building, but like 50 people there on a Sunday, right? So they said, Mm -hmm. come revitalize and I noticed that everyone I talked to in the community, they were not anxious to get inside the walls of a church, right? And Mm -hmm. and COVID exacerbated that because they did church in many other ways for years. If they were even curious about church, like institutional religion is not something that excites most people in the desert Southwest. And, you know, this community, I mean, Phoenix is just so diverse, right? And yet you see most Methodist churches out here are predominantly white. And so there's just a cultural disconnect too. So I decided to launch what I called Connect, which actually never met physically within the walls of the church and had a lot of college students from ASU engaged and involved. So it meant cooking dinner together, hiking together, They told me in no uncertain terms that if I put Connect on Facebook, they would all stop coming because that would make me super old and I am a geriatric millennial and they told me to shake that off and to figure out what TikTok and Instagram were. So just the platforms I used had to shift, but it was a super diverse group, right? Like, so whites were the minority in this Connect community, which was amazing. 
And I found people who primarily weren't Christians at all, but just wanted to talk and explore and understand more of where I was coming from. Also, so I could embrace and share where they're coming from, too, and their faith journey. So it was amazing and fun. So just the way you did church, where we did church, what it looked like, so different. In addition to that, funding was way different, right? So what I realized is out West, and I think really in church plants all over the U.S. in particular, as I'm seeing, have to be really real about the outreach that they're doing in the community, and it can't be transactional. It has to be relational. So, you know, gone are the days where a church plant could grow and reach more people by a canned food drive, right, or raising money that they'll send away somewhere. People want to engage in ministry with their hearts, with their lives. And so right before I left, I actually wrote a quarter of a million dollar grant to FEMA, which we got approved for. So it was so exciting. Now there's like five full-time staff at the church and we're welcoming 50 50 to 100 families seeking asylum um, right from the Yuma border. Border Patrol drops them off at the church and we give them a new set of clothes, hot food, hot shower, a place to stay and rides to the airport or bus station to connect with their sponsors. So It's been phenomenal, and that's been a way that we've been able to reach the community because they hear about it, right, and they're volunteering, and they might be Jewish or— I mean, actually, um, St. Vincent de Paul Catholics are providing all the hot meals, and then 100 Angels, which is a nonprofit, are providing the hygiene kits and the backpacks. Uh, Red Cross has donated the cots and blankets, so— So again, it's outreach-oriented, and it's very collaborative across Faith. Arizona Faith Network is getting the word out about volunteers to come. There's another Methodist church receiving all our donations because if people send them right to our church, the protesters find us and show up with their automatic rifles, and that's a whole other thing. So then the police have become our friends. Anyways, it's a little crazy. It's a little intense, but it's super important ministry and outreach and beautiful to be a part of when I volunteer and visit there. So so church is changing in terms of where it meets, how it meets, how outreach-centric it is, that you 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 cannot receive funding from the annual conference for three to five years and think that will ever be enough to be self-sustaining. So tithes and offerings for both existing churches and church plants will never, ever again fund a full-time pastor and thriving programming in a faith community. And I think that's been a real gut punch to a lot of our pastors who've been around for 30, 40, 50 years who wonder, like, where's all the money gone? Like, why can't we pay our bills? And I think it's a beautiful challenge because how do you give away your space, right, and repurpose it in ways that benefit the community, that are not manipulative, but offer that opportunity to have relationships and to receive the funding you need to keep doing what you're called to do. So... Those are some of the big shifts. I don't know. Well, Rachel, you've just like laid out a whole feast for us to ponder in just that right there. So I'm going to go back a little bit because you've just offered so much. First question about what you've shared is, how many years have you been now in the desert Southwest? Just two? Um, One. <laughs> one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's September, so 14 months. I've lived in Phoenix for 14 months. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Look at you. Okay. You got on the ground. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not in the Bible Belt anymore. And somehow you were able to have some conversations, find some young adult and and make something happen. So slow that down just a bit. Yes. For those of us that are a little slower... (laughs) And say, like, this is what I did. 
And this is what the result of that was. Yeah, great question. So, you know, in planting, the the key is when you get there, you need to just meet as many people as possible, right? Like at least 40 people a month, get those contacts going. And I guess that's kind of another shift too that I'm grateful for is we're moving from a colonizing approach to planting churches to more of a post-colonial. So, you know, I'm not going to show up. I didn't show up and say, okay, I'm going to get a great worship leader and the right version of the Bible and the right songs and wear my skinny jeans and do my hair just like this. And of course, everyone will show up because I'm bringing God, you know, to the community. That is not going to work. So I had to go and see where God was already at work and what doors mm-hmm. God could open. So, so yeah, I show up in Phoenix. And although I was appointed out of this established church, I actually never spent a full day day there. I don't think anyone at the church even saw me except for an occasional Sunday, and I never had an office. So I just hung out, and I tried to find people with a shared affinity. So like the college student thing started when I—so I was a Peace Corps volunteer, which I feel is the best preparation ever for church planting because I was dropped in a country, and I had to figure out the language, the culture, the change agents, and create something sustainable within two years, right? Like, that's Church Planting 101. Yeah. Um, so I'm in the Return Peace Corps Volunteer Group, which in Phoenix happens to be the largest in the U.S. So wow. I was hanging out with all these RPCVs. One of them is a professor at ASU. And because Peace Corps had shut down due to COVID, she teaches a class to train college students to go into the Peace Corps, and she needed Peace Corps buddies that were return Peace Corps volunteers because there were no active ones to help her students make a podcast about the experience. So she asked for volunteers and I said, sure. And she's like, but you're not going to like proselytize them. I'm like, I promise I'm going to be like a cool Christian and leave my bullhorn at home. Right. So I talked to these students who were a little concerned as to how I would share my face or if I would, but I was, I just talked about the Peace Corps. Right. And It was an amazing experience to work with them, and they asked if they could come over for dinner to taste food from Bulgaria, where I'd served and lived. So I had them all over and made some cuvache and, yeah, shopska salata. Anyways, this whole book, and taught them how to make it. And they had so much fun. They're like, can we do this next month? So then I reached out to my Peace Corps community and had someone who'd served in another country come and teach all of us how to make food from that culture and talk about her experience. So every month was a different place. And then... I guess the campus ministry at ASU heard about me and what I was doing and said, well, we feed our students Tuesdays. Could you come? So then I went there and ate. And a lot of their students are from India getting their master's degree in engineering. And they were all new to the U.S. And they said, well, we would sure love to like see the sites, but we don't have cars. We'd love to hike. And I'm like, well, let's go hiking. And so 30 showed up that first Saturday when we went to hike. And And then they wanted to come and make Indian food for my other group of ASU students at the other campus. So, I mean, we just kind of built and grew it from there. And then I realized, gosh, like, I'm a geriatric millennial. You know, I'm a mother, right? I'm not that cool. I don't have that cool factor. So I found two other young clergy in the conference, younger and way cooler than me, and we formed Connect Together. So again, it wasn't just about, that's another shift, right? from pastor-centric to, like, vision or community-centric. So Deontes and Lauren and I took turns preaching our short services online and hiking together and meeting with these students, kind of decentralized the leadership there. And and that was beautiful, too. So, so, you know, I was meeting these—it just kind of all built over time. So I got there in July, was making meals and dinners by October, November. We started the online element to our worship in March, right around Lent, so— 
Bilton grew up from there. But then again, I guess maybe this is another shift. When I knew in March or April that I would be appointed as the developer, I said, oh my gosh, well, who is God going to call to come and be the missional consultant at Central? And so I kind of put a pause on what I was doing with Connect. I mean, I'm still... I'm having the Peace Corps students over next week because they want yeah. to. And the professor's having me take on another group of students this year. But anyways, so when I knew I was moving, I said, well, I'm going to stop so that whoever's coming in, I guess, again, with this like post-colonial concept, Floor is from Dallas. And she was born in Chihuahua, Mexico, right? And she has a beautiful like variety of gifts and experiences. And I didn't want her to feel like she had to come in and do what I was doing uh, in my way. So She's coming in, and, and actually, she's met a bunch of young adults from the Mexican consulate, and they're going to Cirque du Soleil in Vegas next week. So, <laughs> church is so different and so beautiful, and I'm I'm loving it, loving the connections that I've maintained, but also seeing the influence Flora's had with those students and the others she's meeting, taking it where she feels called to go. So, mm-hmm. so you've said a lot there, and I would say a stance, a ministry stance in the world which is so different. So let's let's like take a pause and articulate what are those core shifts that are different now? And one of them I'm just going to share that I, I'm hearing from you. And that is that now there's a deep listening to where is the energy and the passion? Yes. And just following that thread, just trusting in that thread and saying, okay, these these people want to have dinner. Okay, here's this. And it's it's not a strategic plan anymore. It's not. You it's not a checklist. It's not like, you know, meet 40 people and then have a really big event, hire a kids minister, get a worship set list. It's all so different. It's so contextual. Yeah. And so from all of that experience, I can see how then this FEMA grant happens because you're dealing with Peace Corps, students from India, people from Mexico. And then how is it that this this new idea births forth in you about this FEMA thing? Tell us about that. Yeah, gosh. So again, you just figure out what your affinity is, right? And reach people in whatever way you can. And going back to some of our old principles, you remember this, Beth, right? Like we would encourage potential planters to do ride-alongs with law enforcement just to get to know the community, see their perspectives. So I was new July of last year and signed up to be a, a volunteer chaplain for the state troopers. And do you know they actually gave me a uniform and a bulletproof vest? Um, Phoenix is not the safest place, but I did learn like the streets where my kids are not going to go hang out because it's like Prostitute Alley or that gang is there. Anyways, it was fascinating. And I'm one of two female chaplains for the state of Arizona. It's crazy. Wow. So, you know, I was hearing about the needs from the border because folks are, the buses are coming. And if they have nowhere for these folks to go, they're just like dropping them off in the street. And Central is actually located directly across the street from the attorney general's office and ICE. So they actually called us and said, listen, we know Title 42 will be lifting soon. It's going to be a crisis. And we don't want to leave families at a bus station when it's 124 degrees out. But we don't have an alternative. Can we come and tell you about what it would entail and see if you're interested? So we said, well, sure, come. And they saw we have five acres of land right in downtown Phoenix and a two-story ed building that's empty that used to have Sunday school classes and now has literally nothing. So they said, holy moly, this would be incredible. Could you, would you consider making this an outreach project? And I said, absolutely. But 
we are completely broke. Like when my husband and I got to Central UMC, they were averaging 35 grand a month in the red, Beth. I'm like, we have literally no, and they had 50,000 in the bank, right? So we thought we would have to close in December. A lot of pivoting there. That's a whole other podcast about how to save a church that is falling apart. But I said, well, can we connect you with FEMA? Because there are funds available. So then I was on a Zoom call with some guy in D.C. who runs the emergency food shelter and relief program. And so I talked to him and he said, listen, we just need an application very quickly. Funds are going. The need is there. And all of this happened, Beth. Oh, my gosh. I think it was like two weeks before Easter that... Ice came in toward it. So I remember Monday, Thursday, I'm there in the sanctuary because we had Stations of the Cross and I'm in the lobby just typing up this grant, figuring out what would I need? What would it cost? Like, how do we make this happen? Sent it in right after Easter and a week later found out the funding had come through and we started receiving buses like four weeks after that. I mean, it was super quick. And the grant is kind of an ongoing one now. They test to see, we have like stages. So eventually we'll get up to 200 a week um, of guests, but phenomenal and incredible. And again, this is where connections matter, right? Because the main concern of the church and the church council voted unanimously to welcome this program in. So kudos to aging white congregations Mm. who know the shift is happening and embrace it. But they said, where are you going to find people to run this program? And here in Arizona, about 90 to 95% of our guests speak Spanish. None of us did, right? And so they're like, how are you going to find bilingual staff that are will- that don't have jobs that are willing to come and work right away? But I had used an app called Peanut to meet other moms. And I met this one mom on the Peanut app who introduced me to her friend. And that friend had a nonprofit. And so I let her host an event at the church. And at that event, another friend came who has done this, has built up programs for people who are unsheltered or seeking asylum for years. So I was like, Jeanette, is this a God thing? And she's like Pentecostal, you know, Puerto Rican from Brooklyn. And she's like, let's do it, Rachel. And so she brought her friend, her daughter. I mean, all the staff have come through. They are incredible. And then, you know, Floor graciously, courageously left all five kids, three grandkids, and she and her husband relocated to Phoenix this July to take on the program. But she's bilingual. Her husband, Luis, from Puerto Rico, is also on staff. So again, it's just like a God thing. I feel like if you're just open to whatever's happening and you're super relational and willing to to just embrace all the craziness that will ensue, it it all kind of comes together. So it's so much fun. And they're like the most fabulous team. We're having a great time. And you never know where you're going to find those people at peace. Yeah, exactly. You know, government agencies, police, ICE agency, mothers of friends of friends of friends. From apps, right? Yeah, from apps. (laughs) And it's just like, follow the energy, follow the energy, follow the connection, the next connection. It's like God sprinkling the breadcrumbs and saying, come on, come on, come on. Rachel, I've been waiting. Tick tock, open your exactly. eyes. Exactly. <laughs> Let me take the lead on this because you don't know what you're doing. And that's become evident. I do not know what I'm doing. But with God, all things are possible, right? And now that floor's here, what we're realizing is we have some families that come that don't have sponsors. And so in 72 hours, they will be homeless. So we're working on what a faith community could look like if we provide housing temporarily 90 days and help these families get jobs, enroll their kids in school, 
And the church is actually discerning and pursuing a path of converting that two-story ed building into seven stories of affordable housing and housing for these families seeking asylum so that that can become the faith community. It's like a new home. You know, how do we welcome the strangers in our midst? So I, I can't wait to see what it becomes over the next few years. But Floor is definitely the right person in the right time to take it to this next stage. So that's another shift I'm going to throw out there because okay. I've really appreciated the way a lot of denominations and non-denoms are trying to be more multicultural or multi-ethnic. But I've also seen a lot of harm being done by white folks with good intentions who were like, oh, look, I hired a diverse staff. Look, we're diverse. But what they're doing is they're forcing the staff to assimilate to the white culture of the church. And so it's actually more microaggressions and racism and does more harm to the the very folks that you're trying to welcome and include and, and listen to and be an ally to. So I think we still have a lot of work to do around that. And I mean, God bless my husband, right? He's trying to learn. He's like the only white guy on staff and he has to learn to communicate. He has to make the change. And he's aware enough to say, okay, the way I meet has to be different. The way we talk about goals and expectations um, with the Hispanic Latina culture is different from what a white guy who's like a one on the Enneagram and just wants a checklist is used to. <laughs> so he comes home kind of exhausted some days. And then our other staff members, you know, are from the black community here. So it's very multicultural, multi-ethnic, and, and it's really hard work, but it's really important work. So I think churches, especially if you're like a white pastor of an anchor church that's trying to be more diverse and equitable— you need a coach, you need some best practices because you're probably going to, I mean, like a big one, like a no-brainer, right, is salary. I heard a staff, a church plant out in the Bible Belt was trying to be more diverse, so they brought on a co-pastor who made one-fourth of what the senior pastor did. Wow. And you can't say that you're embracing equity and diversity if you're not even giving them a living wage. Mm -hmm. So that's work that has to be done too. And in our female program, like we're paying them well because they're working hard and they have lots of gifts. And so maybe some of our staff don't have college degrees. Guess what? You don't need a college degree to help people feel safe and to connect with them and get them resources for the next step of their journey. So, so I don't know. Yeah, we, we're still learning and growing, but that's kind of a challenge I want to give as we're trying to be more, more multi-ethnic is to do it without assimilating to white culture and celebrating diversity that really isn't there. And what I'm hearing underneath that, what you just said, is uh, focusing more on gift and passion than on degree and, I don't know, standing. Yes, exactly. Who's who's called? Who's all in? Because if Again, COVID was exhausting. None of us are okay. We're all tired. We had to adapt and pivot so much that if someone's heart is really in it and they're really excited about something, I mean, that's worth way more than someone who might have taught a course in it, right? But hasn't actually done it in decades. Right. And doesn't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. So, Well, I think that in another time to invite you and your husband to a podcast to just talk about what's happening at the church and how all of that shift is happening for the church members. So right now, what I'd love to do is now move on to this new role that you have as developer. And what are you discovering? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. So you know me, Beth, like, oh, I'm a three on the Enneagram. So I love to work and pour myself into whatever I'm doing. So I've been on the job about 60 days, and I've met with 54 pastors and churches in the conference, which is almost half of the churches I have. So I love Desert Southwest because we have really great churches, but it's not so big that I don't really get to know anybody. So I spent, you know, four days in Vegas last week and then in Tucson and, you know, from Nevada down to Arizona. What I'm seeing is, well, attendance is down, right? And nationally, Mm -hmm. we know that most churches are seeing 50 to 60% of their average worship attendance come back in person post-COVID. Unless you're a small rural church with like 12 people, then all 12 are back, right? Right. And finances are down, But I'm seeing pastors super open to like learning and trying new things and super excited about spiritual entrepreneurships or, you know, ways to generate multiple revenue streams through affordable housing or through leasing to a local school or starting a nonprofit or even for-profit opportunities. So I love that. I love that they're bold and courageous. I was actually in Avondale earlier having coffee with a pastor who is wanting to convert the parsonage into a garden that's also a restaurant that serves food that they're growing so that they have a place in the community, a gathering space, and hosting Bible studies worship there. And it will be self-sustaining from the income generated from the business. So I love that. And I'm hearing other ideas out in the desert Southwest area and beyond of, you know, utilizing churches as RV parks, right? We have a lot of that movie nomads who won the Oscar. Um, There are a lot of folks in RVs that need a place to go. And how could we have opportunities for discipleship or worship? Um, And then whenever they return to their homes, wherever those are, they're taking their faith journey with them too. So So lots of exciting, innovative stuff that I think five or 10 years ago would have scared us too much. Yeah. Um, But Mm -hmm. with General Conference coming up, especially with the Methodist Church, we know that this is the time to just dig into mission and transformation and welcoming in new people so that there's no fear associated—I'm not sensing any fear out here with General Conference being a negative thing, but just a reminder that we have to keep growing and reaching new people and trying new things. So— so given given the fact, I know that you're you're new in this role, but how do you see that position as church developer shifting as the context around you shifts? Great question. So so there are some developers that just focus on new church plant projects and others that do just vital faith and I do both here. So, you know, one thing I'm looking at with my committee is shifting our funding so that we're pouring more coaching into existing churches to help them figure out these next steps. And then when it comes to new church plants, we're looking at a more detailed kind of assessment process so that we're putting the right person in the right place. Again, back to gifts and passion, right? Because historically, like you could have a really gifted planter, but if you put them in a place or with pastors that don't want them there starting something new or a DS that doesn't understand what a church plant should be doing, it's not going to go well, right? So we're being super strategic about who we place where, what we're asking them to do. And we're also not 
putting anyone in without an external revenue stream plan in place, right? Because we know they won't be self-sustaining. We're also shifting for the first time in our conference to a lot of matched giving. So, you know, over your first year for every dollar you raise through crowdfunding on social media, we'll give you $2. And that's a good incentive, right, for them to get out mm-hmm. there so that it can be self-sustaining within the five to 10-year mark, right? It's It was three years. Now it's about five and can be seven to 10 if it's ethnic or multi-ethnic or you have a bivo covo pastor planter in place. So those are some shifts. And then things I'm seeing. So in my conference, we haven't had any disaffiliations. Um, I think that's a little atypical for the Methodist church right now. But another shift I'm seeing nationally is in areas where there are churches leaving the UMC for another denomination. The conference is sending in like a cooperative parish or they're trying to do new church plants, even if it's a parachute drop kind of mentality. Again, just to have a Wesleyan United Methodist presence in that neighborhood. So lots of really cool things happening, but again, so different from 10 years ago. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about bivocational. Even, you know, five years ago, that word was people just didn't know how, how to handle that. Like, oh, these folks, they're not committed to ministry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or, or like when I heard bivocational, I was like, oh my gosh, if you had told me I had to be bivocational when I was planting my first church with a, you know, a six month old and a husband in full-time ministry, I would have said, not today, Satan. Like I can't, how do I work at a job like half-time or full-time and start something or yeah, or if you're bivocovo, maybe you don't have the same gifts or graces or education or it's been... This word that just is triggering to people in so many ways. But I think it's it's a beautiful new reality. You know, like there's mm-hmm. a guy named Danny in the Midwest who just started a church in the last few months. And he runs a brewery, right, at, called The Well. And then The Well is also where they worship. So it's helping him reach more people and break down some stereotypes. That, you know, wait, you're a church that runs a bar, right? So is this Ohio? I think that's where he is. <laughs> but we're seeing more and more of it because, I mean, my gosh, Beth, like if we want to put an elder as a planter and pay housing allowance and medical and everything else, like that could be, you know, I don't know, 75, 100 grand every single year. And if someone is, yeah. I'm now, for me, I'm a big believer in bivocational over co-vocational because it would be exhausting to like be a teacher and then try to plant on the side. Whereas like Danny, he runs the bar and that's where they meet. So he's always kind of at work in one sense at one place or the other. So I like the bivocational because what you're doing is also feeding into this faith community that you feel called to start. And are you finding in your conference that there's an openness to entertaining that kind of uh, approach to leadership? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's the reality of, of finances, right? That's forcing right. people to consider it. But but it's also freeing to them too, right? Where you don't feel trapped like, oh gosh, I've got to stay in ministry because I have no way to feed my family. Well, you actually do. You could be doing a lot of things. So why are you called to ministry right now for such a time as this? So, so I, I see it as being a way to help people also kind of reclaim their own self-care journey and learn time management, and also learn a benefit of being bivocational that I love is you have to empower and equip laity because you can't do it all because your right. time is is finite. 
And, you know, we can trace one of the reasons we started to decline as a Methodist denomination in the 1800s was when we professionalized clergy and made first right. UMCs and put them there full time to do it all. So I, I'm hopeful that this new forced interest into bivocational ministry will also remind us that we have really gifted laity that are longing to be seen. Oh, so like fun story with that. Okay. I was last week in the Vegas area. There's a town called Pahrump Valley. That's like an hour outside of Vegas. And it was a small church, right? 15 people and no pastor. And so the DS, who is brilliant and compassionate and kind, asked a part-time layperson and a part-time retired elder from Kentucky to co-pastor it together. So two women in their 70s, right? In one year bath, in the midst of a pandemic, because they started when I did, and they blew my numbers out of the water. They grew up from 50 to 75. They're baptizing babies. There are families coming in. It's phenomenal. And now the layperson is the one going full-time, and it's because they were engaged in outreach. They made a partnership with a local farm and were selling produce in the parking lot. And the woman that ran the farm started a free kids' choir for the community. And they had a thrift store, and they'd offer free items to people in need, and they had unsheltered persons living in an RV in the in the parking lot and providing security. I mean, these women were all in, but it was all about community engagement and loving their neighbors. And they are growing by leaps and bounds. They are hot stuff. They're Judy and Phyllis, man. They're and and they don't want to leave. They're like, wow, this is bringing life back to us too. Again, it goes back to that call, right? But. They're both bivocational in the sense that they're retired half-time and working half-time. But with that kind of growth, they've been working full-time, let's be honest. But stories like that, I think, give us hope, you know? Yeah. We're not all in decline. We're reaching people. We just have to see it differently. And then there is this sense of freedom when, you know, okay, half-time, quarter-time, engaging in that passion. And again, it's not the, you have to meet this metric by this time. You have to create something. You have to create. You have to do a program. You have to. You have to. You have to. Yeah. It's more of a of a listening into what longs to spring forth, yeah. which is so much more organic, so much more joy filled, so much more the way of Jesus. Exactly. Well, and you're kind of bivocational now, right? Like, how are you yeah. enjoying the church? How are things going, Beth? Uh, I love it. I am <laughs> loving being here. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, Rachel, based on our conversation today, anything else that you just want to throw out there that that you want to make sure that people that are listening in can drink in? I guess kind of to summarize the shifts I'm seeing are that, you know, new faith communities are not building centric, right? You have to consider bivocational options or multiple revenue streams from day one. Look at grants, look at whatever you can do to fund this ministry, and be post-colonial and mindful if you're trying to do multi-ethnic work as a white person. Do your work ahead of time. Get a coach and be strategic about that, too. But it's still incredible. I still love it. And we'll dabble in planting every now and then, however I can, um, even as a developer. Yeah, I think you're you're going to be a church planter forever, Rachel. I mean, wherever you go, there's going to be a community that's starting and flourishing. I love, yeah, cereal planter. It's in my blood. I can't help it, but <laughs> but it's great. Well, Rachel, can you bless us on our way today for folks that might be saying, wow, what a whirlwind of gifts is Rachel Gilmore. I don't know if I could do anything like what she does, but I feel the call of God and 
just don't know what to do next. So could you offer a blessing to folks like that that might be listening in? Absolutely. So, you know, I never wanted to do this. I said no when they asked me to plant. So if you're sensing a call, you have gifts. I mean, sometimes we feel so alone and like no one understands us or no one can utilize our gifts, but God is longing to use who you are right now and the gifts that you have to impact the lives of others. Like there are people who are out there who feel lonely and invisible and you could be the answer that they've been waiting for. God longs Mm -hmm. to use you. So embrace that. Is it scary? Yes. Will you fail? Yes. Will you be exhausted and overwhelmed a lot? Yes. But it's still the toughest job you'll ever love. So go do it. And and join in. Oh, so sorry. Last final plug. So I do have a community I started, right? Because in all my free time, that there are about 240 of us in a Facebook group. And we encourage each other. We swap ideas. It's called Intersect. And so actually, it's the first, I think, Methodist-based church planting training group that's led primarily by women and people of color as well. So if you want to join that group, find us on Facebook, and we'll get you connected to others with some free resources to help you along the way. So just don't do it alone. We're in this together. Thank you so much, Rachel Gilmore, for blessing us with your wisdom and your energy today. Well, thank you, Beth, for having me. You're amazing, and you and Paul are doing great work. So thank you so much for this podcast. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.